All right, everyone, welcome to the May 23rd episode of the New York Sports Roundup podcast. We got Chris and Jim tonight, and we're talking all things New York sports. While coronavirus is still uh, screwing up most of the sports world, there are some signs that things are opening up a little bit. So there's more to talk about, and and we're excited to do it. Before we do that, we want to give a a special thank you to all our new listeners and new subscribers. Uh, The audience of the show is is really starting to grow, and some of you have even reached out and and liked us and favorited us, so we can't tell you how much we appreciate it. If you haven't subscribed, make sure you you do. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you get notice of, of when we drop new episodes. Tonight, uh, I want to start by uh, talking about some football news and talking about uh, the New York Giants in general and DeAndre Baker in particular. So for those of you who haven't heard, apparently uh, DeAndre went to a party uh, down in Florida and got himself into some trouble. Depending on who you believe, he either went there with Quentin Dunbar and some other assailant, and uh, they parked their cars outside, and they went in with the intention of robbing the place because they had a couple of nights before lost $70,000 gambling on something or other, and they wanted to steal it back. Or, um, if you believe DeAndre Baker and his agent, he went into that party, uh, brought his Xbox in or or his PlayStation or whatever he bought in, played uh, video games all night, had no part in any incident or ruckus that may have occurred, and then went home and had milk and cookies and went to bed. And, you know, I got to believe that the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I, I, I don't know, you know, that I find it totally plausible that DeAndre went to a party in Florida and played video games the entire time he was there. That, that doesn't strike me as, as uh, you know, that logical. But, but I know something happened at that party. And, um, you know, the Giants have responded to this by – telling DeAndre to stay away from the online team meetings. They haven't cut them. They haven't fined them. The NFL hasn't taken a position yet. So I want to start, Jim, by asking you, what do you think of the Giants' response? Too harsh? Not harsh enough? I mean, there are some people on Twitter who were saying, cut this guy. Uh, He wasn't all that good last year anyway. Where do you come down on this? Well, I mean, the issue with cutting him is that, you know, Gettleman did take him with the 30th pick um, when you look at, you know, some of the other players that he could have gotten, you know, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow just to cut the guy, especially when you give up a fourth and a fifth to move up just to draft him. So, I mean, I think it's fine. You know, we've seen this before from teams when um, they want to have the legal, you know, um, basically the legal process play out before they make a decision, which is fine. You know, this is not a situation where DeAndre Baker was caught on camera holding a gun up to somebody's head and, and, you know, demanding the money and wallet and wallet and jewelry and everything else. So it's sort of a, he said, she said, I know there's been some back and forth between uh, Quentin Dunbar and DeAndre Baker online, even though they were supposed to be kind of unified to this. So that's interesting. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, they're football players. If there's not concrete evidence, this will probably be tossed out or community service will happen. And I'm sure he'll get a, 
four day, I mean, sorry, a four week uh, suspension. Usually the four, four games is the most popular suspension to throw out uh, to a player, especially as young as, as Baker. I can't see him getting a full year or, or whatever, unless there's prison time involved. Uh, but again, it doesn't seem like there's significant evidence out there to, to sort of, you know, um, put him in jail for, for a long time. So, you know, it's interesting, but yeah, as far as the response, I think that it's, it's appropriate. You know, I don't think they should make so many, you know, any rash decisions, especially with what's out there right now. And now there could be other evidence we're not aware of. Um, but again, it's a party there. I, it's doubtful. There was a camera. It's doubtful that, there are, you know, maybe there's some witnesses who are giving different statements and there's going to be a lot of different evidence being presented at the end of the day. It's probably something, nothing's going to happen. Um, but again, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a weird story. I think there's a, I want to get your opinion on this too. It's weird that um, when you look at the NFL and maybe it's just the, the quantity of players per, per team versus the other leagues, but it just seems like every time it, it, there's there's issues with players and you know and i don't want to hear oh you know well people are home and know what to do well first of all if you look at the other leagues it's not going on like it's it's the nfl right now you have the, this situation you have the ed oliver situation obviously so you saw quinn and williams in the beginning what, what happened to him um you know there's a couple of other incidents with with people you know getting into struggles with the police it's like you know guys like can we control the league like i, I don't i don't get why all of a sudden these guys just go home and, and just go back to or start these nefarious, you know, um, just situations or we're in these situations in general that just they, you know, it's, it's just um, it's really just a spiral down for a lot of these players. It's just it's interesting how it's just this league when, you know, you can make the same argument. Well, what about the NBA? Well, I haven't he- heard about the NBA, any issues in the NBA. If anything, they're unifying to try to put a season together. And in the NFL, it seems like all of these guys are just getting away with murder, literally. There have been a lot of player conduct issues in the NFL. I mean, I mean, DeAndre and Quinton's issues are definitely the most serious. But, but there have been other issues, and I thought a lot about that. And I guess I come back to, you know, think about the kind of person that it takes to be a professional football player. Unlike the NBA, unlike the NBA, unlike, unlike the MLB, unlike the NBA – Unlike, you know, a lot of other major sports, it is a sport built on violence, on uncontrolled violence and size and, and, you know, and anger. And, you know, when they, when they draft offensive linemen, for example, you know, they're always like, you know, this guy's a a bruiser. He's feisty. He plays right to the whistle. He's emotional. Like, and, and, you know, that's, that's, held up as like a, a great thing, you know, and, and it is on the football field, but I don't know to what extent these guys can just turn that off when they get off the field. And I think that they, that's why you see more of these sort of violent altercations among football players. I mean, look, we all have trouble turning off our jobs when we get home. If you're, you know, account, an accountant, that's uh, not so bad. If you're a football player, well, there's some violence going on. I mean, I mean, you know, so I, I really think that, that that's it. I think it's a, a bigger league. You know, obviously you got 12 guys on an NBA team, 25 guys on an MLB team. So you got almost double on a, on a football team. So there's more opportunities for guys to get into trouble. And then you add in just the physical violence of the game. I think that's the reason. What do you think of that? I mean, that's a good point. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you know, it's just it's one of those things that, you know, I get I, I get the the, um, the size of each league. 
even you know even the salary is probably on average lower and i haven't really dug into this but i'm sure the nfl is probably lower on average salary versus the other leagues too maybe not hockey but um i'm assuming they're and it's not guaranteed either right so these guys could make 250,000 or 300,000 a year get cut and maybe see you know 40,000 of that or something so um, I, I get that too. It just it, it's but wait, but wouldn't you? Not, but wouldn't you think that that the non guaranteed nature of the contract would make it less likely that they get in trouble because they, you know, it's not guaranteed. They could lose their whole ride. Well, I, I mean, I think you made a good point. I think it's just the a lot of these look. We're, we're, you know, we're beating around the bush here, right? A lot of these guys come from fractured backgrounds. It's not there's not it's not a hidden thing. You know, a lot of times you hear about. Um, the under the table dealings with maybe giving the mother a house or paying for jewelry or tattoos or something like that. I mean, that's, it's obvious in football. I mean, like it's, it's, you saw the Ohio state situation, which got basically a coaching staff fired. Um, and that was just based on autographs. So, you know, more stuff is going down behind the scenes. Oh yeah. And it's, it's, but you made a good point, the violence. So I think, you know, you, you probably, you, you can't really take the violence out of a person. Um, so even when it came down to money, I've seen people piss away more money than that on stupid decisions. You know, and these, these guys, when, when push comes to shove, I guess, you know, when, when, you know, if there's guns around and you need to represent yourself with your friends back home, you know, that you grew up with and, and hit the streets with, then I don't think there's a lot of decisions to be made. I think you're going to stand up. And that's, I think that's what really bites these people in the ass. That's so fucking stupid, though. You know, what? It, if an NFL player is at a party and gets in a fist fight. You know, it doesn't bother me, and, I, and I'm like, okay, it's a violent game, and that's an excuse, maybe. But the minute, like, the guy left his house with a gun. Like, Ploxigal Burris went to a club with a gun, which means the guy got dressed, you know, he, he, and, and he made a point to be like, I'm going to go into this public place with a gun. If the allegations against DeAndre Baker are true, that well, that's the second most troubling thing. The first most troubling thing is allegedly at the party he told somebody in a red bandana who was also holding a gun to shoot somebody else. Okay, that's the most troubling thing. But the second most troubling thing is that he left the house, got in his car, drove over there, and had a gun on him. And I'm like, why are all these why are all these professional athletes carrying guns? Who are they afraid of? DeAndre Baker's a big fucking dude. Like, who's who's messing with him at a party? Now, I guess maybe they're a target because they're they're famous or whatever. But you know, it's like don't put yourself in that kind of situation. I don't understand that. I don't understand why why guys with non guaranteed contracts are walking around with firearms. I mean, look at look at Quentin Williams. He put a gun on a plane, and Oliver drives around drunk with a gun in his car. Wait, it's like, what guys, is like, that? I, like, what are you doing? What, like, where see that? That's scary, and, and well, you know, obviously this is the New York sports. Ed Oliver's Buffalo, if you know, you're a Buffalo fan, and Quinn Williams, obviously the Jets. I mean, that's troubling from an intelligence standpoint. These guys are both 21, 22 years old. They have their career ahead of them for all account, you know, intents of purpose. Like these guys are legitimate defensive studs on the rise. Uh, you know, where is the intelligence? That's where, where I'm concerned about. Well, let's talk about that for a second because so after all this stuff came out about DeAndre, or, or after the the party. And the party incident, a lot of stuff started coming out about DeAndre where last season in the locker room, people thought he was, quote, dumb as shit. And it came out today that like half the scouts were against taking him because when he was in college, he had to have his ass kicked every day to even go to practice, allegedly. And so, you know, the, the locker room is kind of like he's a moron. 
and and the coach half the coaching or the scouting staff is like we thought he was lazy and stupid how much of this is on Gettleman for not vetting the player now keep in mind it's not it's not this year where you know there was limitations to what you could do it's last year when there weren't so how much is this how much of this do you put on Gettleman for not properly vetting you know a player and and taking him with the first round pick you know it's it's funny um I think that there is a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking going on and, you know, sort of um, looking back at what could have been, I guess. Like, so when you look at the 30th pick, right, what happened after that, you had guys like Devo Samuel taken after Baker. You had guys like Jawan Taylor, the tackle for the Jaguars, who is pretty much a uh, legitimate offensive tackle. You had guys like Rocky Sin, who I know that um, – you know, there were a lot of people, I think, who want who who look at him and saying, well, he's a legitimate corner. What is Baker? So I think there's a lot of that. But I wouldn't be surprised. Look, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, those types of situations and that that news that does come out about players who are lazy. It's it's a it's a coin flip. I mean, you know, we had as Jets fans, obviously, there's been a lot of cases where, you know, people were lazy in college and that laziness translates to the NFL. There were other cases where they were lazy in college and it didn't translate to the NFL. So it's really you don't know what mon- how money motivates somebody, um, whether it's a positive or a negative. I mean, you, I think you saw with like Hainsworth, right? When he got his money, well, he just became a lazy bastard. But when other people get their money, sometimes they just play up. You know, yeah, like, so I, it, it it really depends on the person. I mean, I get that, but I guess you know, if there's a split in the scouting staff and you're and you're hearing rumors that the guy is lazy, like I I, I looked back at you know, where I had that draft positioned. And and I didn't have DeAndre Baker as like a solid, you know, standout, you know, guaranteed golden first round pick anyway. Like, and I didn't know any of this shit. So from my perspective, you know, just based on the scouting, you know, I, I thought it was fringe where he went. And now you're hearing all these things about, you know, he he you couldn't even get him to practice when he was in college. And I'm like, what not only did we take him, we we moved up to get him. And I'm like, why did Gettleman sort of overrule half the staff and and go up to get this kid? Like I I don't know. It doesn't make a it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, especially because then he gets into the league and and he's not I mean, he got better as the season went on. I'll I'll say that. I mean, his last four games are the best four games he played, but for a while there, he looked terrible. So you question the pick just on based on a performance standpoint. You question it just based on a scouting standpoint. You question it because half the scouts were against taking him, arguably. And then you move up to get him, and he doesn't play good, and now he's got problems. I, I get that, that drafting is an inexact science, but I, I put some of that on Gettleman. I mean, I think that's just a miss. Oh, I agree, too. I mean, the thing you have to look at, right, like when you play for Georgia, you're going to be versing pretty much the top – talent in college football and the guy you know i mean he was pretty much a consensus all-american as far as i remember um he was probably i think he was one of the best defensive back if not the best defensive back in college football during that time period so you know it's it's sort of like i hate to say it at 30 but it's sort of a high reward low risk pick and i get it there was obviously risk but you know the only way we could the only way I look at situations like this, especially with the 30th overall pick is you have to look at what they did in college. You have to look at what they did in the combine and everything really, you know, pointed to this guy being a good player. Now, again, 
when it comes to intangibles, when it comes to motivation, when it comes to maybe being lazy, I, I get that kind of stuff would obviously hinder somebody's performance in the NFL. Um, but on paper, I mean, this guy was supposed to be the next big time corner. He was take he was the first corner taken last year. Yeah, um, and that's, you know, so that's you, true. You would, that's, yeah. that's a fair point about you know he did he did come highly credentialed and he had a lot of accolades. I guess my my problem with him was when I watched his film, I I, I, I thought he was grabby, and I thought that I was going to translate into a lot of penalties. And I also saw you know there were plays where he just looked lost. Um, which kind of fits the narrative, but you're right. I mean, he, he was, you know, a highly credentialed player at a big school. And so from that perspective, you kind of get it. Agreed. Yeah. And I think that's what, and unfortunately, Chris, I mean, this is where like the jets kind of struggle with, and this is what I hate. You know, looking back with the, I'm not going to include Darno in this because it's too early, but you know, looking back at some of the USC guys we took when USC was just amazing, obviously Sanchez in that group. Um, and so is Leonard Williams uh, for, from other team. Uh, other teams that who are, you know, it's usually Alabama at this point, Alabama, LSU, USC. But when you have all of these really good players that go to like the same two or three schools, it is so difficult to evaluate talent. And I, you know, you have to give some of the scouts who hit it credit because obviously they're picking up things that we're not seeing as average people, average fans, but it's just really hard. I mean, back in the day when you took somebody from, you know, Northwestern, it was a little bit easier to see, all right, this guy is obviously a standout amongst his peers. Now, like you're picking the corner from Alabama when his defensive line is, you know, the best in the nation. Right. His linebackers are the best in the nation. You don't He's know racing. what you're getting. You don't, you know, don't know what you're getting. And, and, and I think this is a situation here with Baker, right? He's on the Georgia defensive uh, front who probably, I think last year, 2019 with Georgia, obviously they were a, a pristine team great defense and you're getting a corner from that defense so <laughs> it's it's like yeah this guy was a great player in college but what does that really mean you know? well, we'll see we'll see what happens with it i i gotta i tend to agree with you that everything i've heard i've heard so far coming out of the incident leads me to believe that the case is probably either gonna get dismissed or seriously pled down baker will get some punishment but i don't think i don't think it's going to be draconian i don't think it's going to be a cut situation I wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, you know, the case was dismissed. But let me say this. The absolute dumbest thing that's happening right now is Baker and Dunbar's lawyers fighting on Twitter. Those two need to knock it the fuck off. And let me tell you why. When you're representing people who are both being charged in an incident that happened, you know, at a party, you want those guys sticking together. You want those guys telling the same story the same way and towing the line. You don't want infighting. That's the worst possible thing for a defense when you're, when you're in a multiple defendant situation. Now, they may not know that, but their lawyers do know that. And their lawyers need to knock it off and stop fighting in the, in, through the public and stop fighting through Twitter. You got disagreements? That's fine. You can call each other on the phone and privately, you know, say whatever you got to say. And I know these two lawyers don't like each other, but they're doing their clients really no favors. And and, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I don't know how sophisticated DeAndre Baker and Dunbar are when it comes to picking legal representation. I'm not saying these guys are bad lawyers. I'm just saying I think they're letting their ego get in the way a little bit of what's in their client's best interest and they should stop it. 
So I want to move on. I want to go to the Jets near and dear to your heart. Um, first piece of news, uh, Jets sign former Super Bowl quarterback Joe Flacco to be Darnold's backup. What do you make of that? What do you think of the signing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a no-brainer. Um, you're talking about $1.5 million. You know, it's you saw what happened last year. Um, you know, obviously, when, you, when we had Trevor Simeon, we thought we were in a good spot. And we know what happened with that. And we kind of, you know, went through four different quarterbacks until Darnold came back. So this is, a, I think, a good situation. And then, again, for people who are like, well, why would we draft a quarterback then? Well, first of all, that quarterback's going to be on the team. James Morgan is still here. He's not going to be cut. He's not going to be put to the practice squad. More than likely, the Jets will just carry three quarterbacks next year. Um, I know they – I think they signed fails too. So, if anything, he'll just be put back on the practice squad um, like he was. You know, so it for me, this is a no-brainer. We needed a veteran quarterback. Um, it's still good for Darno. Darno is still one of the youngest quarterbacks in the league. So we still need somebody back there that at least can be a mentor, um, has a lot of experience in the NFL. And I think that, uh, you know, of the quarterbacks remaining that were out there, I think Flacco just fits the bill. I mean, he, he know, you know, obviously Joe Douglas and Joe Flacco um, know each other pretty well. They were on the same staff, um, or I'm sorry, well, when Flacco was a quarterback, Joe Douglas on the staff. So they know each other. Obviously, this is, I think it's a good, um, it's a good position for Flacco. I think he's now kind of settled down to, all right, well, I got my shot at Denver. I don't think I'm going to be a starter anymore, so let me try to do the backup thing that a lot of, a lot of the old, older quarterbacks get into. So I have no issue with it. I think it's good. I think it gives a, a, a James Morgan um, allows him to get you know have less pressure on him uh, to, to at least you know grow as the future backup, if not starter. Obviously, you know that would have to be like a big crash for Darno, but um, you know you, you draft these guys like a James Morgan to hopefully tailor him into a next, you know, at least a great backup. So I think that's good for him. No pressure. And I think it's a nice one year stopgap um, as a backup, but I think it's very important nowadays, you know, when, and I kind of thought going into this year, you know, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of quarterbacks available, but when I think you, when you look at the entire list of available quarterbacks, it made sense to bring in Flacco at 1.5 million. I agree. I mean, 1.5 million, I mean, to add what, what I think is in the running to be, the best backup quarterback in all of football. I mean, if if Darnold gets hurt and and you got to and, and the Jets are in contention and you got to bring in somebody who you're confident can step in and and win a game or two. I mean, I don't know I don't know that there are many backup quarterbacks out there who I trust to do that more than Joe Flacco. I think He's a he's a good guy. I think he's going to be he's going to be a good mentor for a very young quarterback. So I think it makes sense from that perspective. One point five million dollars for a backup quarterback of that caliber is is a no brainer. So I think from the Jets' perspective, um, you know, it, it makes a ton of sense. But let me tell you who I'm really impressed with in this whole thing, and that's Joe Flacco. And you know, a lot of every NFL player will tell you, "I love the game. I love football. It's what I was born to do. I love being around the guys and being in the locker room." I can't imagine what I would do if, if uh, you know, I, I wasn't in this situation. But you know it's just something they're saying. Joe Flacco's really walking that walk with this deal. I mean, he could easily retire. He's made a ton of money. He's, you know, a Super Bowl quarterback. He, he you know, was one of the, you know, maybe the 10, top 10 quarterbacks of his, of his era. Um, you know, and, and I've heard of, you know, criticism about him always game manager. Like, I don't want to hear that shit. 
he he could easily have ridden off into the sunset, go play golf, and signed a contract to to you know to go on TV. Rather than do that, he's taking one point five million dollars to stay in the league and swallow his ego and become a backup to a young kid and mentor him in a new situation. That's pretty incredible, and to me, that shows a pretty strong you know attachment and commitment to the game. I agree with you. I think, um, you know, obviously you can't really look at win-loss record. Um, it's It really goes – it ebbs, ebbs and flows based on the team that's around him. But I, I look at his accuracy numbers, his completion percentage. If anything, it's gotten, it was better on Denver um, last year than his, his usual average in Baltimore. Um, and, again, his talent on Baltimore was never great. I know his interceptions was always a, were always a problem, but but I, I I think he's you know when you look at backup quarterbacks, I know you just made that point. I think um, there's been interesting signings this year as far as backup quarterbacks. I know you had well you had Mariota on the Rams, which I thought was kind of puzzling, especially at the money. Um, you had Jameis Winston, who I thought was an amazing deal to go to the Saints. I think um, he only signed that deal to be the next Breeze, or you know at least uh, he's trying to be the next. He wants to work for with Sean Payton. That's it. Yeah, and, and I mean, I mean to get him at one million. Yeah, you know, to me, that's probably the best deal you're going to get in the offseason. But yeah. no, I agree with you. I think Joe Flacco is right up there as backup for backup quarterbacks. He's 35 years old, so he still has some mileage on him. And we're not talking about a 40 year old Mark Purnell who signed with the Jets, you know, four years ago, to, or or Josh McCown that's 39. I mean, this this guy could easily step in and win games for the Jets. So I'm exa- I'm very excited for that. I'm excited for the fact that there's another veteran behind Darno that could say, "Hey, kid, like this is what you should be doing in this situation." He's been around the block. He's seen it all. To your point, he's been in the Super Bowl. He's been in tough playoff games. He's on. He was on Baltimore for years. He's he's seen amazingly tough defenses. You know, when you look at the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cleveland Browns. I mean, I know people like you know like to make fun of the Cleveland Browns. Their defense has been great for years. It's their offense has been shit. Their defense has always been good. So I mean, he's seen all of that, um, and I, I think that's going to be you know a really a, a big plus. I, I I would say for Darno. And you know, speaking of Darno, I mean, we're talking about Joe Flacco. Darno this year. And we really haven't delved into the season yet. Obviously, there's, some, there's a lot of time for that. But um, this will be a prove it year for Darno too. Like you know, we, we, you know, he's gotten a lot of leash. Obviously, he's been injured. He's gotten mono. You know, whatever. But you know, th- he's gonna have uh, the weapons aren't great around him. But the offensive line should be a little bit more improved. But he does need to up the accuracy numbers. He does need to show more poise in the pocket. Uh, and you're hoping that Joe Flacco, um, again, Joe Flacco is not gonna pressure his job. I think, you know, Joe Flacco's job will be to mentor and coach this kid. So I think that's what you want to hope as a Jets fan to get out, from, you know, to get out of this signing. Um, but especially if something does happen, to know you have a capable backup. right? Yeah, and I mean, the knock on Flacco has always been always a game manager and he's not, you know, he's not going to go out and win you the game. But I mean, when you're talking about somebody to mentor, I mean, situational football is really important and, and managing a game is really important. And, and I agree with you that, you know, he, he doesn't need to teach the kid how to, how to throw, but but sort of managing the, the game and, and the situation, I think is going to be obviously, you know, a big help. And so I think that was good signing. The other, the other big news out of Jets land is allegedly, supposedly the Dallas Cowboys have resurfaced as a suitor for Jamal Adams in a trade. Um, the, the rumor uh, last year after the Jets slow start was that the Cowboys had offered the first round pick, that by the way, they just used to take CD Lamb after after his surprising mini fall. Uh, they offered that first round pick 
and a quarterback. I think they're, the guy's name is Anthony, who I, who I don't know real well, but I think he was a, a six rounder. Um, he's, he's, you know, he seemed like a sort of average third quarterback. Uh, so, you know, it was a first rounder plus, I guess is the point. And the Jets turned it down. Now, Adams and the Jets haven't come near a contract. Signing a safety to that kind of big money doesn't necessarily seem like a Joe Douglas play to me, just based on what I've seen of him so far and, and how he seemed to have not overpaid for people in, in uh, the offseason. So what do, you, what do you think? Do you see Adams getting traded? Do you see it being Dallas? And, and if so, what's the price? So this, this is completely convoluted. Um, I don't know what's going on because when you look at every single person that's out there commenting on this, it's a different opinion. Um, and I don't want to hear them now, you know, look, Michael Irvin was a great player. I don't want to hear that he's plugged into the, like, just shut, shut the fuck up, Mike, Michael Irvin, like seriously. Like, yeah, okay, great. He always surfaces when there's a troubled black youth you know, where like they need assistance. Oh, there's Michael Urban and Deion Sanders and the rest of the way. That's all I hear about Michael Urban. Like, look at you, but I don't want to look at you smacking down Michael Urban right there. I love well, it. you know, because he always comes up out of the blue, like, oh, I have a, I have a scoop that's an inside scoop. Nobody else knows. Since when? You know, if anything, I trust you know guys like Adam Schefter and and guys like that, not Michael Urban, <laughs> to break scoops on you know trades and and how he knows exactly what the offer is and what the package is. I, you know, again, I, I, for me, for me, that's for, for these rumors, it feels like he's the main source of this. So, like I said, I'll take that with a grain of salt. However, however, you know, having said that, I know from some people, there's been some talks, um, you know, as, as we have some Jets fans on this podcast, they're probably on like Jets Reddit, um, a couple of other Jets forums. I know what's been reported was that the Jets were asking for a first round pick and a third round pick. Uh, at the very least, for Jamal Adams, which is correct. I mean, Jamal Adams is just as good as some of the safeties and cornerbacks who saw traded last year. Um, so I'm, you know, that's fine. But I also know Michael Gallup. Uh, his name has been floated around, especially now with CD Lamb on the Cowboys. Um, they're they're kind of letting back channels know that Michael Gallup is available. So look, if there's, I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a couple of, there's a couple of things in the situation, right? So you have the situation last year, the trade deadline, which Jamal Adams was rumored to be pissed off that he wasn't traded to the Cowboys. Um, it burned a lot of bridges, apparently, uh, especially for Douglas, who was kind of new to this and new to the Jets. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of love there for that. Um, you have the situation, what happened with Darrell Rivas, where he, you know, all of a sudden he became an all pro and all right, now I'm going to hold out and get as much money as I can. And I don't know what the Jets want to be in that situation, especially since Joe Douglas has proven to stick to his guns when it comes to salary. Yeah, he could walk. You know, Jamal. I mean, if you, I guess you oh, yeah, franchise you him, but, but he could walk. I mean, I mean, you know. He, he could easily walk. He's not going to be happy if you, if you franchise him. I mean, so, so play this out. Let's say you, you trade him to the Cowboys for a first and a third. Are you happy with that trade? Do you think it's enough? Uh, I don't think so, because I think, I think he's better – than um, Minka Fitzpatrick. And I know Minka Fitzpatrick got a first and a fifth, but I think that he do- deserves probably more than a first and a third. Yeah, I think you're right, and I'll um, tell you why. The Cowboys have a chance to be really good this year. Yeah. And, and they, they, you know, they could put it all together and Mike McCarthy, you know, and they could win 10, 11, 12 games. And so that first-round pick, 
while it sounds great, isn't so great if it's in the 20s. And the same thing with the third round pick, obviously. You know, it's not like you're you're trading him to somebody who's really like a bottom second round pick. So I agree with you. I wouldn't be happy trading Jamal Adams for a first and a third round pick. But the problem is that the entire world knows that you're you're having trouble signing him. And so, you know, from a team who's trading from him standpoint, not only do you have to give up a first rounder plus more, then you have to sign him to what is probably going to be a market resetting deal for a safety. That's a tremendous ask. Um, and so from, I look at it from the jet standpoint, and I'm like, Oh, one and a third isn't enough. But then I look at it from a team trading firm standpoint and I'm like a first and a third. And I got to pay this guy at the top of his position. That seems like a shit ton. So I don't know. I mean, maybe a first and a third isn't so bad given the contract that you're going to have to hand this guy and given the jets alternatives, which are not good. Well, and here, well, here's the thing. So, and for those who don't know, um, who haven't watched Jamal Adams, look, I get, I get it, right? The Jets haven't been in a lot of meaningful games and haven't been on a lot of national televised games, but Jamal Adams is the real deal. He's not your prototypical um, John Lynch safety. He is not Ed Reed. He is not, you know, a guy that's going to sort of take away, you know, the middle of the field. He is a basically a utility player. He is your Swiss Army knife on defense. The guy can cover tight ends. The guy can blitz. He can play basically up to the defensive line and, and actually break through the offensive line. He could take away speed guys. He could take away the middle of the field if he needs to. But he is literally one of the best. He is probably the best player in the field of defense that the Jets have, even including Mosley back and everybody else. So he is worth it. He's worth the money. You know, I, I know people are like, well, we shouldn't pay – Defensive backs, a lot of money. He's not. He's not your prototypical defensive back. The guy can play up up to the line and blitz if he needs to. He's one of the best um, safeties and, in the NFL, and he's perfect for the modern NFL. He is, and and we, you know, the Jets forever could not take away a team's tight end. We saw it with Gronkowski. We saw it with shit. Any even a low end tight end. <laughs> all of a sudden, like if you if you're playing DraftKings or FanDuel, and you're you see the tight end versus the Jets, usually they're like the 32nd rank, and you would just plug them in automatically. I mean, that's what it was for years until Jamal Adams came. And now we're one of the toughest teams against the tight end. I mean, and in a league where the tight end is becoming more popular again, when you look at a lot, a lot of teams and, and some of the players they bring it in, so he is really – he's worth the money is what I'm trying to say. And look, the Jets aren't starving for cash. They are. They have been very. They've been brilliant when it comes to the salary cap. They still have a ton of money left over. Uh, what, what, you know, whether or not the clowning rumors are true remains to be seen. But um, you know, it's not like they're starving. So I think. I think what's going on, to be honest with you, is what I just said. I think they're waiting to see how Clowney plays his cards. I think they're. They, they don't want to sign Adams to a long-term deal. I know it affects next year, but they want to see what happens with Javion Clowney because if that is a large signing. They're going to have to figure out what to do with Adams. Um, again, I think they try to sign him, but they just can't open up a checkbook and say, here's a blank check, Jamal, just tell us what you want. I mean, it's going to have to be down to the penny, and they're going to have to take account uh, to make sure that this is going to work. But I'll tell you something. If they can get Jamal Adams to sign a long-term contract and bring on Clowney, and then you have Mosley in the middle of the field, I mean, this is this defense has really gone from nothing to a, a big something in a matter of a couple of years. I think Jamal Adams is the best player on the defense. I think that – I, I like Joe Douglas in that, in that he's he's shown a commitment not to overpay for guys, but at some point you got to think to yourself the guy's a perfect fit for 
the modern NFL. He he's the best player on our defense. He's he's one of the most important players on our team, and and you know he he is not an injury concern like Clowney, and and he probably is worth resetting the market for. And we're not going to give him up, and we're just gonna we're just gonna build around him because he is the kind of guy you can build around. I mean, he changes so much in that defense that that worked me. Were I running the team, and I I subscribe to the theory of don't overpay, don't give huge deals, you know. But but I just think he's too important, and and I would I would open the checkbook if I had the cap room and pay him whatever reasonable amount I needed to pay him to keep him. So speaking of money, because we're on the subject of money, we are going to talk a little bit about uh, Major League Baseball and the current money fight that's going on between the players and the owners, which, while it affects every uh, team in the league, affects the Mets and the Yankees as well. So for for those of you who haven't followed it, here's the basic deal. Baseball is trying to come back with an 81-game half-a-season season. And – there, there is a disagreement between the players and the ownership, perhaps unsurprisingly, about how the players are going to get paid during that 81-game season. Now, what the players want is they want their contractual salaries on a prorated basis. So if a guy's making $10 million for the season and it's a half season, he wants $5 million. From the player's standpoint, that's fair. Ownership has responded by that. They say, yeah, no, because when we play 162 games, we play it in front of full stadiums and packed houses where we sell merchandise and we sell concessions and we sell all this other stuff, parking that earns us revenue. And we are not going to earn those things playing under this plan because we're not going to pack the stadium. It's going to be spectatorless. And so not only do we want you to take a prorated salary, we don't want to pay you the salaries that are in your, that are in your contracts. We want to pay you 50% of the revenue that we make during the year. And the players have responded to this in a couple of ways. One, they're like, well, fuck you because you know, we, we've been asking for a revenue share when the years are good every year for the past, like, however many labor negotiations. And you told us to go take a walk. And so now that, like, it's bad for you, now you want a revenue share? And just for this one year when, when you're not going to make any revenue? No. And number two, we don't trust you because you're not going to open up your books to us. And so how do we know what revenue you're making? Like, you could say anything. Like, you could say it's X, Y, and Z. And, and we don't trust you in your funky accounting practices. And so, you know, that's kind of where things are to the point where, you know, players are sniping at each other on Twitter and players are sniping at ownership on Twitter. And, and you know, it's really putting the season in jeopardy. Like, even if we can come back from COVID, if these guys can't get this sorted out, then there's not going to be any baseball. So, so I put it to you, Jim, who, who you got in this dispute? Whose side are you on? Yeah. So, I mean, it's tough, right? So you're talking about decisions that are made this year can potentially affect long-term decisions, right? So if you're talking about giving up anything on either side, um, it's going to be used against you in negotiations for the next contract, for the next bargaining agreement. Um, you know, you'd be like, well, you gave it up before. Why not? Why can't you give it up now? And then obviously bring a mediator in. They're going to say the same thing. 
So it's a delicate situation to say the least. I will say that probably in the public eye, when you look at these, I would say probably players are going to get more judged when you're talking about money than owners. For whatever reason, I get it's built, owners are billionaires and players are millionaires or whatever, but um, it's it, usually the players get blamed a lot for, hey, guys, you're playing a kid's game. Take the money and shut up, right? So you hear that a lot. Um, it's going to obviously get echoed more as this thing gets closer to this, the, you know, they were talking about opening July 4th weekend, right? So now we're only 45 days away from that. Um, so the, the, the echoes are going to get louder. It's, it's an interesting situation from the fact that even if, let's just say to your point, there was revenue sharing, the players agreed to take even less than half of their salary. Do you think Mike Trout is going to come and play for 25% of the salary when the guy has 200 million in the bank or with, with endorsements? Do you think a guy like, you know, Garrett Cole or, you know, Max Scherzer or like guys like that are going to just all of a sudden Strasburg all of a sudden come out and say, you know what? Yeah, we'll play for nothing. I mean, it's great. Like they're never going to do that. It's going to be basically the, the replacements that are going to be showing up to the field. It's going to look like the, the world baseball classic, you know, like where guys who are just trying to make teams, that's going to be your baseball. And you know what? Maybe it does get ratings because people are sports starved. And that, that is probably going to be the first uh, league that does, does come back um, to, you know, to play. But at the same time, it's like, you know, is it worth it, right? Is it worth it for the union just to kind of bend and break for the, for the owners when you even know that if you, if you even did that, the top stars are not going to come back. Yeah. But, you know, and, then, and, then, and if you're the union, you have to represent all. That's, and, and that's, that's the problem. That makes it a tough situation. You're absolutely right. That's a great point is that, you know, a guy like Max Scherzer, take that, you know, a pitcher and a guy who's had some injuries over the course of his career, you know, he's putting a year of wear and tear on his arm in a short kind of what weird year where he doesn't have the same run up plus and and i know it's been talked about a little bit but it's really the players who are taking whatever covid risk is out there right because they're they're gonna have to you know group together at least a little bit and be around some other people like you can't socially distance sliding into second base just doesn't work that way and so you know they're putting their health on the line to to play they're, they're putting another year of wear and tear on their bodies, which is a short career. And you're right. If the money gets too light, I could easily see a guy like, like Scherzer being like, I'm taking the year off. And like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go sit on the beach and I'll come back when I'm making my full salary and have my full off season. I could totally see that. But then on the other side of the coin, you know, the owners have to think about all the owners too. And you've got guys like the Wiltons and Cheater down in Florida who in a normal season lose money, allegedly. Uh, I'm not auditing their books, but allegedly they lose money. And so from the, from the perspective of the Mets and the Marlins and these teams that are historically cash strapped, if you're going to be playing at a major loss that you can't sustain, why open the doors, right? Like, why not just, why not just say, forget it. We'll, we're, we're not going to take that loss. And if the model that you pick is not financially viable for every one of major league baseball's teams then you can't do it and so so basically mlb has to hold in negotiations not what works for the yankees but what works for the marlins because you can't bankrupt a team you know losing five hundred thousand dollars a game because you're paying players with nobody in the stands to buy eleven dollar sodas so 
from that perspective, you know, ownership has to hold the line too. So I don't know that there's a good answer to this other than to say, here's how I come across with it. This is not a one-year relationship, guys, right? It's a multi-year going forward relationship. So owners, you need the players to cooperate with you this year and take a little bit next, little bit less money or whatever you need them to do to make the games viable. Do that. And then next year and the year after that and the year after that, so maybe for the next three years, when things pick up again, give them a carrot. Give them something that they wouldn't have otherwise got. That's how I would handle it. And I, I mean, and the other thing is too, right? When you talk about, so there's a couple of things when you look at that. When you, you mentioned before about not doing it for the Yankees, doing it for all the teams. Well, all the national televised contracts are split evenly between all 30 teams. Now, the argument has always been, well, if you're the Yankees, you're spending you know $230 million a year on, on, on salary. When you're the, when you're the um, Marlins, you're spending you know, $20 million, $30 million. So if you're getting $1.72 billion in revenue, let's just say from Fox Sports, right? Because I think they're the, the nationwide partner of MLB. You're doing two billion divided by thirty. Well, I don't want to hear now that you're all of a sudden crying in poverty when your salary is thirty million dollars. Yeah, but there so are some TV teams. Rights... There are some teams that are operating at a loss even with that TV money. Yeah, and I don't know if I believe that honestly because it's like from from what I have always heard about baseball and about sports in general is that, and again, I could be dead wrong, but this is what you hear because to your point, we can't order the books. I always thought these teams operated the stadium at a loss or break broke even to uh, support the televised contracts, the sponsorships and things like that. So to me, if you still have the sponsorships and any, if anything, you would have even more sponsors trying to pour in because ratings, if anything, have proven to be monumental in when, when these things are and, and baseball has a leg up right now in all the other sports. They could start earlier. They can, you know, get in the door earlier. They have, you know, let's not talk about soccer or golf or whatever. I'm saying like the four major sports. They can get into the door quick. So they have that. So sponsors will be pouring money into these teams, right? So that's not going to be accounted for in all this. Then you have the national, your contracts. We don't do contracts read, but the speculation is that if they can play at least half the year, they'll get their money. So now you're talking about, all right, these baseball teams are not only going to get additional sponsors, to probably get into the stadiums because guess what? Like, you know, it's not just going to be like your uh, Utz pretzels on New York, your New York stadiums. It's going to be some national sponsors, Amazon and Walmart. They're going to want to get in there. Then you're going to have the televised rights, right? Fox sports will have a baseball game on every day. I'll tell you that right now, every day ESPN will have a baseball game on every day, probably three a day, you know, so you're going to have all of that too on top of the revenue that's still going to come from merchandise. Just because somebody is not in the damn stadium doesn't mean they're going to buy, not going to want to buy Yankee shit online. So, and online sales have, if anything, have proven to grow along with, with COVID, you know, going, you know, happening. I mean, you've seen some of the, the first quarterly earnings being reported out this month and, and uh, companies with significant online presence have benefited. And I'm sure based MLB.com or MLBshop.com, whatever it is, or one of those th- or one of those <laughs> websites that have benefited. So yeah. again, I think you're talking about a lot of money here that's un- unaccounted for, and I'm I'm not one to sort of celebrate and cheerlead for millionaires trying to get more millions because at the end of the day, it is what it is. But 
I think in this case, because you're talking about so many people and even coaches, right? So you're talking about coaches and a lot of people getting affected by this. I think the, the owners really need to come to the table and say, hey guys, you know what? Here, we're gonna be transparent with you. This is where we're gonna get. Here's the money. Here's what's gonna come in. This is what ultimately it's gonna come back to our pockets. Let's figure this out. Yeah, that's and what you needs to what? happen. You you've kind of persuaded me because you know I said I said earlier that like you know what you have to make the the financial situation work for all thirty two teams. But but I thought about the examples I gave, which is the Will Ponds and and Jeter. You know Jeter came in and he bought the Marlins and he basically had a fire sale and they've sucked ever since. And it looks like there's no hope that they're going to be good anytime soon. The Wilpons forever have been kind of shitty owners. And part of me is like, yeah, you know what? If you don't like it and you can't financially afford the team, then sell it. You know, the, like you've got a, you had a $2.6 billion uh, offer from Steve Cohn on the table that you screwed up because you wanted Jeff Wilpon to have something to do with his life for the next five years in being an owner of the team. Like, like if you don't like it, then swallow your pride and get rid of the team and sell it to one of these billionaires who doesn't care and take your $2.6 million and shut the hell up and go away and stop, you know, nickel and diming everything. I mean, sports, I I get it's a private company, but it's also a public trust. You know, it's a public trust that cities and people really care about. And if you're going to be in a situation as an owner, I I feel where you're going to have to nickel and dime and you're going to have to, you know, do all these things and say, oh, woe is us. It financially doesn't work for us to do X, Y, and Z. Then sell the team. Sell the team to one of the billionaires who would love to have it and who doesn't have the same concerns as you. Maybe that's a little naive, but that's kind of how I feel. I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, look, at the end of the day, don't tell me Derek Cheater is crying in poverty, right? And he has investors he has to, he has to speak to, he has to own up to. And, you know, it's just because Jeter, quote unquote, bought the team. He didn't buy the damn team. I'll tell you that right now. He had a <laughs> lot of he had a lot of money behind him. Yeah. And and he has to he has to make decisions that return on investment to those investors. And these are situations now where he's going to try to get as much money as he can. And that's why, like, and again, the players want the same thing, right? The players are playing a game. They're playing. And it, again, it's true, right? Like. We, we elevate sports to this whole um, top tier of society where in general, they're just playing games that we played as kids and we just stopped playing because we wanted you know, to move on to, we weren't great and we wanted to move on to things that could benefit us. Well, these guys were great, but they're still playing a fucking kids game at the end of the day. And you know, look, if you get a million dollars, you get a million dollars. However, I've always been a big proponent on getting your money, especially as an athlete. Tomorrow, your arm can blow out. We've seen it, right? Matt Harvey was supposed to be the next fucking greatest thing ever, and look what happened to him, right? Yeah. You see it. You could see it on a turn of a fucking dime that these guys can lose their career tomorrow. So I'm always a big proponent on, hey guys, get the money now, make as much money as you can because you are the top athletes in the world. Like this isn't a myth. These guys can play ball. You know, these are the best baseball players. And when you go to see a minor league game. Go to see a double A game if you don't believe me about these baseball players being the best in the world. Double A, like these guys are amazing in double A. If you ever if ever seen a live a live game, and those guys cannot break into the league if they wanted to. So you know, I'm always and they that. do want to. I mean, they and want they do to want to, right? Badly. So it's it's one of those things where 
you know, again, it's money. It's a money versus money. It's a, it's a standstill. MLB has very creative accounting practices where they'll tell you that oh, the the Marlins are always in in poverty and and bank almost close to bankruptcy, which is always bullshit. The same thing with the Yankees. Oh, look, we spend a ton of money because we make it, but now, hey, what do you expect us to do? We can, you know we can't sustain this bullshit. They own the Yes Network still, you know. So like, I mean, they're going to get their money, you know. So yeah. it's one of those things where I'm probably more on the player side to answer your original question. Only because I've always been on the player side when it comes to this, um, but you know it's it's also a thing where the players have to be careful because any decision they make now, whether it's um, we'll agree to revenue sharing or we'll agree to give back some money, it will be used against them in future negotiations. Because once you agree to something, and, and you know this, right? As as you know, with and any type of negotiation, any type of conversation when it comes to to anything, once you give in, it doesn't matter the circumstances. In two years, when you have the same conversation, when they're going to bring that conversation right back and say, "Hey, you gave this, you gave in two years ago," and you could you could say, "Oh, well, it was COVID, it was this, it was that," it'll be used against you, and they will just it will just be, um, you know, it'll be brought up a million different times until they bend you and break you, and then they'll just say yes. So they have to yeah. be very careful of what they agree to because it will have a long term impact in the future on on baseball. Yeah, and- and you mentioned and you mentioned Jeter as as an owner and like and him not crying poverty like the Wilpons are even like a, a bigger example of that. Like if you can turn down two point six billion dollars, then I don't want to hear your shit about you know we're going to be operating at a loss. Like like I just don't want to hear it. Like you, you turn down a two point six billion dollar deal because you didn't like the other terms of it. If I was offered a two point six billion dollar deal. I don't care if the other terms were it were I had to get my ass spanked while wearing a Princess Leia bikini in fucking <laughs> Times Square, okay? I'm going to take the $2.6 billion. So if you can turn down $2.6 billion and be like, nah, we don't like the terms, then don't tell me that you don't have the money to, to run like a single season at a loss. I think, I think we've come to the conclusion that they should pay the players their prorated salaries they should shut up about it, and if they don't like it, they should sell the damn team. And uh, yeah, we're, we've we've decided that we're on the player side. I think I think that's the right call here, and I think ownership needs to uh, needs to get their shit together, frankly, because I I really want to see baseball, and the country wants to be see baseball, and it's all this stuff about you know it's America's game, and and you know it's the game of Ruth and Gehrig and Murderers Row, and it's got all this history. I mean. Think about this for a second. If they don't get to a deal, right, they don't, and they shut the season down, what ramification does that have on them financially and from a goodwill with their fans standpoint? Oh, I mean, they're going to lose a shit ton of money. I mean, you know, I think, again, I I don't know if this is the real figure or not, but I know it's, you know, $4 billion has been floated around um, as potential losses. I know they they did say, again, I know you brought that uh, point up earlier about, well, when we shut down the stadiums or if there's no fans in the stadiums, it's going to be $600,000 a, a day that we lose, which, okay, but you have $2 billion in TV revenue, which is only going to increase. And guess what? Like, to me, as you know, somebody, and I'm not in marketing, but I assume when you're in marketing, you can renegotiate contracts and, and get in additional sponsors who will want to pay you more for more eyes on your products. Right? Isn't that the whole purpose of marketing? That you want to have more eyes on your product? Well, this will guarantee it. They're the first sports league to come out to play every fucking day. So I'm assuming they can probably double 
their existing sponsorship contracts with a lot of these uh, with the, with these um, you know vendors or suppliers. And if they don't want to do it, well, I'm sure there's termination rights that you can start now to get more people into your your doors and and have you know more sponsors. So to me, they can make up that money. I don't want to hear the fucking you know. The yeah, bullshit but think about, about think about the opposite. I mean, forget about the money for a second. Think about the goodwill that you're going to lose. With your fucking fans. If you well, the, down. the problem I is mean, everybody's, I mean, over money. I mean, the last one yeah. there was almost a baseball stoppage from a labor standpoint. I mean, people were flipping out. And, and now well, during this pandemic, when the whole world is suffering, people are missing paychecks and having to close small businesses and, and restaurants are shuttering and people don't know how they're going to keep the lights on. Millionaires and billionaires are like, nah, we're going to shut the season down because uh, we, we can't come to a deal. I mean, I think there'd be riots. I, I mean, I think it would be damaging to the long-term brand. Not and I think, thing. so when you looked at, so you bring up an interesting point. When you look at work stoppages in general, and you want to go back to, to the baseball strike of the mid-90s, um, the hockey strike in you know 2000s, and you had the NFL strike, I believe, also in the 2000s, the players were always blamed. Um, it what the Senate got involved a lot of times, especially with with, with baseball. Back in the, I remember back in the nineties, it had to do a lot with the player pensions. It had a lot to do with the benefits. The players were blasted because hey, you guys, and I, and it was a point of our player, right? You guys are playing a kids game. You just shut up and take a million dollars and play the damn game. For whatever reason, the general consensus of fans and audience. Really, you know, uh, go to the owner's side very quickly, and it's 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 because, and I don't know if it's because the general audience of baseball is like the construction industry, or very like you know blue collar, where they're making you know again maybe they're making a, a very modest salary, and they're they're going they have the lunch pail work right they're going into work every, you know eight, nine to five Monday through Friday, um, doing what they what they can but. You know, it, it does seem like the players get blamed a shit ton. And I don't think this is any different. I think the players would get blamed. And that's something I've read in a few different articles about if this does happen, fans will, you know, will, will blame the players. I mean, we've seen it with the NFL and the, the kneeling. We've seen it with the, the, the um, you know, obviously the, the national anthem stuff. We saw it with hockey and the strikes. The players just get blamed. And it is yeah. what it is. And I think that's what you're going to see again. I mean, yeah, you'll see. Yeah, maybe there will be riots. Maybe there will be pissed off people because, as you can see, so we're talking about, you know, May 23rd um, on this podcast. And May 23rd, and when you listen to this, will be the day that a lot of states open up or at least get to that second phase that the CDC recommended. And you can see a lot of people are going out um, and enjoying, you know, the, the warm weather or going to restaurants or going to shopping or, or doing things that are just out of their house. So, they're, you know, these are people who are really pushing uh, sports and saying, hey, if we, we can do this, and, you know, obviously that's, that's a fully debatable topic that we're not going to get into, but whatever, <laughs> people will say we could do this, and they're going to say, why are the players, why can't the players do it? And it, it, it will be on the players, 100%. Yeah, so, well, I mean, you know. I don't know, I don't know, because, I mean, I started not knowing who I was going to put it on, and then I sort of came around to blaming ownership, so... You know, I, I agree with you that in normal times, it's the players who take a brunt of it. But I think it, it depends a lot on sort of how this comes down and how this comes out and how it gets reported. But but even if it's sort of like a pox on both your houses and everybody gets blamed, um, 
you know, that's obviously not good for baseball. It's obviously not good for the players. It's not good for the owners. And and a bunch of pissed off fans is not, I think, what, what anybody wants right now. So I hope that, you know, these two sides find a way to come together and make it about the long-term future and not the short-term, you know, blinding money that, that could screw the whole thing up. We are going to take a quick... All right, welcome back, everybody. So we uh, we're talking about Major League Baseball coming back, and we'd be remiss if we didn't note that one sport, although not a major four sport, but one sport has come back. The UFC uh, held a fight. It was uh, a pretty incredible card, and it was uh, really interesting, I thought, how they did it. I'll tell you that just from sort of a logistics standpoint, I thought, you know, it sort of went off pretty well. Um, I will say that there were more people in the arena than I thought there were going to be. I mean, I thought this was one of those sports that you could really do with two guys, a referee, a camera crew, and maybe an announcer, um, and, you know, a couple of medical personnel. But it did look like they had, you know, as the fighters were walking through the tunnels and they sort of had those shots where they took you back to their training room. There, there weren't people in the stands, but there did look like there were, you know, several hundred, if not potentially close to, to thousands of people in the arena. So I was really surprised about that. Um, but Hey, sports are back in, in at least that way. So what I really want to talk about from that fight is the main event, the Gaethy Ferguson fight, and and Jim, you you have been a UFC fan undoubtedly longer than I have. I am a fairly recent convert to the UFC world, and so you know I, I kind of take your opinion on this stuff. But but for me, I was stunned at the way that that fight went because from the minute the fight started till the end of the fight. There was never a second where I thought that Ferguson was going to win that fight. And, and that has been like, unlike every other time I've seen him fight. Obviously, he's a great fighter. He's won a lot of fights. But, but I was just amazed that in like the, the last round of that fight, his face looked like a pinata. You know, he had taken so much punishment. Obviously, they had to stop it. And there's Gaethy just kind of, you know, dancing around and, and looking like the guy, you know, just ready for a, ready for a, a half marathon. He didn't look, you know, bad at all. And so, you know, Vegas had Ferguson as the favorite. Are you surprised by how that fight went? I mean, why did Gaethy dominate that fight? Yeah. I mean, this is going to sound like, uh, you know, I, I kind of knew, or I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like making this up or whatever, but I, I texted you, I think a day after that fight, I, 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 for whatever reason, I don't know why, but I'm not as big as a Tony Ferguson truther as everybody else in the world is. Um, I think he's good, but I felt like he was exposed in the Donald Cerrone fight. And I get that. Look, when you look at the paper of a lot of this stuff, yeah, he he won in the second round on a TKO. I get it. However, there was a couple of factors there. Number one, uh, Cerrone blew his nose which you shouldn't have. And I think Chris, you and I were uh, probably, I think we were at a, I think we saw that fight if I'm not mistaken, but we were, we were watching it and we even questioned why he was even doing it. 
Um, well, what happened was when he did it, his eyes swelled swell, uh, so much that he couldn't participate anymore. So that was your TKO. It wasn't, you know, he just he blew his nose with a broken orbital bone. The other thing was Tony Ferguson hit him late in the second round. I don't give a shit. I know there's been a lot of excuses about it, but that should have been disqualification. But because it's Tony Ferguson, it was a big fight. They didn't do it. Cerrone's gotten really the, the bit out of the stick in the past couple of fights. Um, even against, even with Pettis, there was an eye poke that wasn't called, which I thought was complete bullshit. And by the way, it was on the same card. Um, and we can get into the judges and how awful, awful they've been for this first the, the two fights without fans. I don't know. I Honestly, I believe the fans actually sway their opinion because it has been awful so far. But having said that, um, I was not a big Tony Ferguson fan coming into this, so... You know, full transparency. I'm not going to like cheerlead for the guy. Um, I thought he was, he's really good at what he does, but he does let his opponents get to him. Um, he does sort of uh, evolve, or I would say probably mimic is, be- is a better terminology for that. Uh, to, you know, he, he mimics his opponents. So I thought Justin had a shot. I thought he had a good shot in this fight. I did take the plus money. Um, as Chris and I alluded to earlier in this podcast, I do bet gamble. On, on a lot of this stuff, so I was happy when the UFC came back. But I did bet Justin in this fight. Um, I bet, and I, I, I did Justin uh, to win. I wasn't comfortable with a um, the decision like it played out, but you know, I thought, I thought to- Tony a lot of the times does do what his opponents do, and I knew that if Justin wanted to stand up and fight him, Tony would stand up and fight him. Tony was much better off trying to take him down. Justin is not a great takedown defender. He is, I think, uh, 75 to 80% in his career, which is, is very substandard. Um, he is an athletic specimen. He loves the, 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 you know, the, the punch-to-punch fights. He has a hell of a chin. Um, I, I, honestly, he's probably what he, – he is – him and Conor would be a great fight. I'll just put it that way. Him and Conor would be a great fight. I think they are – like, Conor doesn't want to take anybody down. Justin doesn't want to take anybody down. Um, and they'll punch the shit out of each other, and they're not going to get knocked down. I think it'd be a hell of a fight. But having said that, Tony got sucked into that, and Tony has not looked good. He did not look good in the sorority fight. I don't care what anybody says. Yes, he broke his orbital bone, but that is not – it is not common. You know, like – and Cerrone, like you could tell, he is in a downswing now. He has not – he lost the last three of his fights. The Connor fight was a joke. He was better in the Pettis fight, but I thought the Pettis fight would go the distance anyway because Pettis – Hasn't shown to be that wonder kid that he was when he was younger. I um, thought Cerrone won that fight, by the way. I, do, I thought so, too. And I, I, I thought, thought he, he won. Got, he got fucked with the eye poke, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, I thought he um, won that fight. Because if you if you notice with the eye poke in that fight, that completely changed. It did. It, did. it changed the whole fight. I mean, because Cerrone had him, and uh, of course. But with this fight, um, again, now, with all that being said, obviously the result is the result. When you look at Khabib, Wait, Tony, a minute, wait a minute. Before we before we get sure. to Khabib, Ferguson took more punishment and kept going in that fight than I think I have ever seen in a UFC fight. The the amount of punishment that that man absorbed from a guy who hits like a Mack truck, the fact that he was still on his feet and trying. I mean, say what you want about his skill. But that guy's a warrior. I mean, I mean, Tony Ferguson is a warrior. I mean, there was no give up in him, probably when there should have been. You know, McGregor tapped a couple times. Like, like you know, sometimes, you know, you, the fight's over. Like, I started to feel 
bad for Tony. Like I was almost like, dude, just go down. Like, like, but he kept going in a situation where like almost no other fighter would. So I, that was impressive to me. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think there's a, a fight that really comes to my mind when you talk about somebody winning was Johnny Hendricks versus George St. Pierre. It was back in 2013. I remember that was, I was saying, but when St. Pierre basically retired in the ring, um, he got such a beating, but he lasted all five rounds and man, did he get beat the shit beat out of him? He actually won that fight. I don't think he probably didn't win, but Hey, guess what? He, he, he should have <laughs> won because it came out basically Johnny Hendricks was juicing anyway. Um, so he, you know, good, good for St. Pierre, but, but no, it doesn't take anything away from Ferguson. Ferguson's a tough guy. You know, we always knew he was a tough guy. The problem is he doesn't close well. And he, like I said, he, he mimics his opponent and he really tries to be what his opponent is, which I think is a mistake. Cause when you look at a guy like Khabib, Khabib sticks to what he's good at. Yeah. He is good at taking you down and holding you down. You know, like it, imagine if Khabib stood, stood uh, toe-to-toe with Connor and decided, you know what? Fuck this guy. This guy's a, a shit talker. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't deserve my fucking takedown respect. I'm going to fight this guy fist to fist. That's what Connor wanted. So imagine if, and that's what Tony did in this fight. Tony was like, you know what? Fuck you, Justin. I'm going to stand toe to toe with you. That's what Khabib didn't do against Connor. Because Khabib could have done that against Connor. And he would got his, I, I think Khabib would have lost that fight if he did. You know, so that's why I think like Tony really, need, Tony's a great, the reason why people believe that Tony can go well and, and, and perform well against Khabib is Tony is not a slouch on the ground. He is one of the best when it comes to, you know, takedown defenses and, um, and grappling you know justin is not good at that by the way but tony is and that's why like he needs to go back to his wheelhouse and say all right what are my strengths what do i need to hone on to and how do i develop a game plan that you know accentuates my strengths and really accelerates it to where i'm a a favor in all of these fights you know without sacrificing things like he did here where it was like you know what screw the takedowns i'm just gonna fight this guy face to face yeah but gavey so so he you know, is a stand-up fighter for sure, like like Connor is, and he rarely looks, you know, to to take people down. He doesn't like being on the ground, it seems. But you know, he was, I think, if I'm remembering this right, what they said was he was like a championship wrestler in college at like a D1 school, maybe Arizona or Arizona State. I can't remember. But but do you think that when he ultimately fights Khabib, and that's got to be the next fight? I mean, do you think that he has enough in his bag from a wrestling takedown standpoint to, to you know, at least not get killed in that facet by Khabib? Or do you think that because he seems to shy away from it so much that this is going to be another one of those Connor fights where one guy wants to stand up and Khabib is just going to go for takedown after takedown after takedown until he eventually breaks through? I think that, uh, yeah, I don't think he has a shot. I, I, and what I was, my, so I, <laughs> my point earlier about Khabib is that, so this Khabib took Rafael dos Anjos, who to me is probably one of the best on-the-ground fighters in the history of the UFC. He took him five rounds and, and uh, I'm sorry, three rounds and treated him like a rag doll. Rafael dos Anjos. So you're going to tell me that Khabib can't do that to Gaethje? Like, come on. And, I, and, and my point earlier about Tony Ferguson, I think – I still think, even after the result of this fight, that Tony Ferguson would be a better opponent to Khabib than Justin Gaethje would. Uh, I don't I think, think so. I disagree I, I, with that. I, I disagree no, with I don't. that 
Because because I think in order to beat Khabib, I, I think what you need is that one shot ability. Like I think if the fight goes five and it and it's a scrum, you're not gonna beat Khabib in that kind of fight. I think what you have to have is the ability to if if Khabib makes a mistake somewhere, have that one shot that just changes the fight and puts him out. Yeah, and I but think that's... JC's got that more than Ferguson does. Well, so Dustin Poirier had that, and Dustin Poirier got put in his back in two rounds. I mean, that that, that oh, three rounds. I'm sorry, that's the problem. It's like, you know, well, if he doesn't yeah. make a mistake, you're fucked. But I'm saying, I think that's the only way. Well, yeah, but that's but everybody had that argument against uh, Cormier too, right? And the only one that had that was John Jones that could actually defend. I mean, these guys, the guys that can swallow you whole. To your point, yeah, they have one shot, but this is not Jose Aldo. This guy is on a different fucking level, and Khabib has taken shots to and before. You know, that's the thing. Like, I, I think that – I think Khabib casting it over is bullshit. But I think once he does, he's going to be the, probably one of the – if not the best fighter in UFC history. Yeah. Um, you know, because he's so dominant. Now, again, I'm not buying into the whole, well, he's like – he. you know, again, I know he's very strong, right? And he wrestled bears or whatever. Um, but at the same time – Maybe he had I, sex with bears. Maybe that's what made him so strong. Maybe, but this, I mean, the guy is scary, scary, scary good. And, and, and I know you mentioned about, well, you know, Justin Gagey is a division one wrestler. Fucking this guy was a, in Sambo when he was like 15. And Sambo <laughs> is like with the fucking Russian, like the, whatever their equivalent of like the, uh, the Marines or like the, the top, you know, military. That's what, the, that's what that, like he was in that when he was like 16, 15 years old, yeah. practicing Sambo, right? He was, this guy was literally like he was wrestling the top guys in Russia when he was like ten. You know, he was he was wrestling armed martial armed guards. You know, just like it's unbelievable what this guy did when he was young, and that's really the difference. I mean, look, this comes back to a lot of sports, but it was a, it's a difference with European fighters. European fighters do like Brazil is a perfect example. Brazilian uh, fighters train at the age of like seven. Right, where like the U.S. have and the U.S. have good fighters, but they train older. Um, it's now you're seeing this in Russia. You're seeing it. You know, there's another guy. I think I I, I don't I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's like Maga Maga Sharapov or uh, something like that. And Alexander Volkanovsky, who is the featherweight champion. They all they're all coming from Eastern Europe, where they're training now to the Brazilian standard, right? They're pulling, they're getting pulled out young. They're getting trained throughout the harshest environments. And it's almost like Sparta, right? So like the toughest guy comes out and is the winner. And that's what these guys are. That's why, look, and it could happen to your point. Yeah, Justin gets off a, a cheap shot. And I cheap shot, quote, unquote, right? Like a, a shot that gets off Khabib. That, that stuns him and knocks him out. But Khabib has just, he's just, so, you've seen it, right? He's so fucking quick. What he did with Connor, he was just came out of nowhere. Like he, you can't see it coming, and it's so hard to defend because it's so quick, and you you can only do so much with your legs to stop it. But you're going to fall on your and the the moment you fall on your ass, it doesn't matter what happens. It's, it's over. over. I know. Yeah. So so here's the thing: if I'm the UFC, to me the road forward in that division is crystal clear. Here's what I do: it's got to be Khabib Gaethje, and it's got to be Ferguson and McGregor. And the reason why it's got to be Ferguson and McGregor is because I think that you have to give Tony an opportunity for redemption 
the way he hung in there in that fight, the way he took that fight and had to cut weight twice, the way he took that fight and had to change opponents, the amount of punishment he took and kept going. I think you and who and just who he is, I think you have to give him a shot at redemption. And I think there's no better way to do it than what would be a huge money fight for him. I think he's earned it. And there is some truth to the what what Connor raggingly says is, you know, everybody wants to fight him because of the pay-per-view buys and because of the money involved. And so it is a plum fight. And I think it should be Tony's. So I think you have you have uh, Khabib Gaethy. I think you have you, you have McGregor, Tony, and then you have the winner's fight, and that's the division. And let me tell you something. If Khabib wins that the, the next fight against Gaethy and then the winner of McGregor and Ferguson, I, th- I think a case can be made that he's the best ever. Well, I think you're forgetting one person involved here, which is going to be interesting. Me? And that's, yeah, and that's George St. Pierre. Well, um, no, I'm not forgetting him, but, but I, I, I think he's, he's – I don't want to say past his prime. I mean, obviously the guy's great, but, and obviously Khabib wants to fight him, but I just feel like that's not, I mean, it's a good fight, but I don't know that that's necessarily the fight I want to see. The man is 40 years old. I agree with you, but man, (sighs) and I get it, right? He hasn't fought in three years. He's 40. Um, I'm he's 40. 40. We should not be fighting. No, but to see one to see probably the two best ground fighters in the history of MMA in the ring together, I mean, it is something you dream of. You know, you would you would love to see like a Randy Couture versus a Conor McGregor. I know they're two different weight classes, but just just, you know, just just guys like that, right? Even like a a, a Stipe versus a Couture. Um, you know, an Iceman, Liddell versus a Conor McGregor. Like, just like these are fights you dream of. You make like you create in like a, uh, a a video game. Like that's what you would see here with a Khabib versus George St. Pierre. I think if Dana got the chance, he would make that fight. But I do agree with you. Now, I don't know if Co- I don't know if Conor versus Tony. I don't know if Conor agrees to it. I, I, oh I feel come like, on! I feel like Conor has his sights set on um, the t- a title. I don't think he wants to come back for a non-title fight. It, it just seems like yeah. If I'm if I'm if I'm Dana White, I'm telling him you want to show off the title fight. This is how you get it. Like stop this shit with Nate Diaz. Like I don't want to I don't want to hear that. Like stop the shit with Nate Diaz. Like if you want a title shot, I'm guaranteeing you. If you beat Tony, you get a title shot. Like I think McGregor takes that fight. You don't think he takes it? You think he's like no? He I don't know. Cerrone. The problem with Tony is that again, Tony is is not a great opponent for Connor. Like Connor versus Justin is a much better fight than Connor versus Tony. And it depends wow. how da- because again, if Tony realizes that he's great on the ground, then Connor's not he's not he's gonna be in a tough spot. I don't know. I think Connor wins that fight. I mean, I, I think I, I think Connor wins that fight. That is a good fight. And I think that that, that is other than maybe Khabib Gaethy. Right, that's the biggest money fight you can make. Like, who would you, I mean? I mean, Connor Tony is well, the Connor, biggest money fight. Connor Khabib would be your biggest money fight. No, no, that would, but you're not going to give Connor a title shot. Gaethy's earned a title shot, so you have to have Connor fight somebody else, I think. And so, and, and I think there's something to be said for him earning his way back into the ring with Khabib. So, since he's not going to fight 
Khabib, his first fight back, because that's got to be Gaethje, and everybody knows it, and everybody said it. Connor's got to fight somebody else. And since Nate Diaz doesn't want to fight him, I think that's got to be Tony Ferguson. Who else could it be? It's true, unless they just shelved Connor until the, the result from Khabib versus Justin. I mean, fuck that. That would be such a wuss ass thing to do. I would hate that. Like, I agree, but it just seems like there's a there's a three way dance right now. If you if you look at Twitter, and if you look at what's going, like Connor just came out of nowhere and bashed not only Khabib's camp again, but also Justin. I know, Gage, Gage, and it's like now it seems like it's a three way dance. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised again if like if. These guys, because they're they're uh, they could they're not they could fight in like three months. So whether or not Khabib just comes back, he dom- let's just say come, Khabib comes back dominates Justin, you could set up a Khabib Connor fight in like two months, you know. Yeah. And I think I think Khabib would take it. And the same thing with with Gaethje. I think if and I, I, look, I don't think I don't Gaethje, know if Khabib would take it. I mean, it's a big money fight, but the way Khabib's talking, I'm not sure he takes that fight. Well, now that Connor's bashing his manager again, his, his religion. I don't know. He feel like he's rewarding him, but anyway, Khabib's Khabib's twenty eight zero. So picture this: Khabib beats Gaethje to go to twenty nine and zero. He beats the winner of Connor and and whoever. I think it should be Ferguson, whoever it is. And then you know to go to thirty and zero, and then he fights George George St. Pierre and beats him, and he's thirty one and zero. That's pretty much it, right? He then he rides into the sunset, and and that's the end. Because at that point, there's nothing left to do. As I see it, what, there's nothing left. No, not in that weight division, unless he wants to move up, um, which would be interesting, right? So, I, I think that you know it really depends on what he wants to do in his career. Um, if you know, and I think there's been a lot of talk about you know super fights, um, and you know what's the proper way, like how do you. Yeah, how do you address, how do you address some super fights going on? Obviously, obviously, I don't think he would move up to light heavyweight. I think Khabib versus John Jones would be interesting. I, just, I don't think it's I don't think that would happen. Um, you would look at maybe like a guy like Usman, so maybe you know Khabib versus Usman. Yeah, but like, all that involves moving up, and those are always a little gimmicky. Like I, if I'm him, I'm just making my money, <laughs> keeping my undefeated record, and calling it a day. But maybe, but if Connor stayed in featherweight, he's the best featherweight of all time. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. You know, and that's the thing. Like, does Khabib want to be viewed as the best best lightweight of all time or best UFC fighter of all time? And I think that's yeah. that's the one thing I would take a look at. Just like Cormier, right? Cormier is probably – and you look at – you know, Cormier is an interesting case because I always saw him as probably one of the best UFC – well, he is one of the best UFC fighters of all time, but John Jones was, was his kryptonite. Now, John Jones on steroids was his kryptonite. <laughs> yeah, you know, don't leave – don't leave that. Now, I don't know now, like the current John Jones, I, I I, don't know why Cormier ducks him still. And I get that he doesn't want to really fight anymore, but I mean, when I, I, he should take John Jones on. Uh, just do it again one more time. If you beat him, you redeem yourself. You're now the, probably the greatest fighter. He, he dominated two different divisions at 35. The guy came in late in his career. You know, like, I know he was a, he was, he was, he was a great wrestler in college and stuff like that, but... Those are the guys you want to see. So I think for Khabib to be an all-time great, you're going to want to see him move up to welterweight or even middleweight. You know, against a guy like Adesanya, and if he if he dominates that even in the upper in a higher weight class, then you can now you can you're, he's in the conversation then for you know probably greatest UFC fighter of all time. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I I want to see Khabib fight as much as possible. So I'm in favor of him moving in any which way direction to keep making big fights because I love watching him fight. 
Um, so I don't know. We'll see what happens there. I'm excited for Khabib Gaethje. Hopefully, we'll be at a point with this lockdown nonsense where you and I can actually watch that fight together somewhere, preferably over over many many beers. Um, last thing we're going to talk about tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern. Phil Tiger Brady Manning golf. Ordinarily, I don't watch golf. Um, I think it's boring as hell. But but this I'm going to watch because uh, of just who it is, and I'm excited to see the side bets and shit. For anyone who doesn't know, here's the rules, okay? On the front nine, uh, Brady and Manning get three strokes total, one each on a par three, par four, and par five. And the lowest score carries the hole, okay? So they all, they all uh, play their own ball. And the lowest score carries the hole with with Brady and, and Manning getting three strokes out of the nine holes. On the back nine, they switch it up. Um, everybody hits their own drive, but from there you pick a drive and then you alternate shots and the lowest uh, score wins the hole. So um, I'm actually pretty excited for it. I got two questions for you. One, are you excited for it? And two, who you got? Who you think's going to win? So to answer your first question, it's tough to say I'm excited. Um, and I, here's the thing, right? I would have much rather see here um, Tiger, you know, Dustin Johnson versus Phil Ricky Fowler, Phil – McElroy or something like that. Like I would have much rather see that. I to me, that is like the the new verse, the new and the old. You know, and they're teaming against each other, and now they're they're going to have. You know, I, I love the Tiger Phil match, that first match where a lot of money on the line. You know, they're side betting because they're both big gamblers. They they didn't give up at the end. They're like, I don't want to. Phil was like, I don't want to fucking win this way. Let's do this again. Like there's just. Like it was, you could tell they were, they wanted to beat each other. I don't know if you're gonna get that here. I, I think this is gonna be a very fun game. You're gonna see a lot of jokes. You know, Tom Brady's gonna be obviously making a lot of jokes. Uh, Peyton Manning, obviously, he's gonna. You know, these guys don't have great handicaps as far as golf's concerned. So it's gonna. It's basically gonna be for Tiger versus Phil again. No, they have they have good handicaps. Well, I think I think Brady I think those was. Guys are both both like. Like six handicaps or something, right? I think six, Brady's eight, in the eights. Like yeah, I mean it's good, but it's not PJ level good. Is I guess my point. Yeah. Um, so I. But, but that's part of the fun is you can see you know Peyton Manning shank the ball and has been to the stands, right? Like that's hilarious. I guess I just I don't know. For me, like for me, that that's probably a I, I value competition more, um, and I think that's probably why I was I was like yearning for maybe more like a. Like, would you? I don't know. Let me let me ask you that question. Would 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 you rather see this matchup, or would you rather see Tiger Woods and Dustin Johnson versus Phil Mickelson and Rory McIlroy? One hundred percent would rather see this matchup, and let me tell you why. I do think it's going to be competitive, and the reason why I think it's going to be competitive is I think Brady and Manning are going to be competitive with each other. I think they really want to beat each other, and I think that their desire to do that is going to drag Phil and Tiger along into, into being competitive with each other alongside. Now I think it'll be fun and I think there'll be jokes and I think there'll be, there'll be, you know, uh, uh, some, some obviously shit talk back and forth, 
But, like, Peyton Manning is one of the most entertaining guys in sports, right? So, like, I'm excited to see him out on the golf course. And, honestly, like, as I started this conversation by saying, I ordinarily wouldn't watch golf. It's boring, right? Even, like, the Masters, the U.S. Open, the, the, the top, top events are fucking boring because these guys, it's like, well, gee, where's Tiger going to hit it? 280 yards down the middle and it's like oh it was a big deal he ended up in the fringe on the left hand side like you rarely see anybody blow up like occasionally you see people have great games but like golf is boring this is not going to be boring this is exciting do I think it would be a better golf match what you're saying sure but this is going to be way more entertaining in my mind and that's what I want so I guess we disagree from the standpoint of like so for me gambling on golf is the best way to gamble. It's the best use of your gambling money. Um, and I know like, you know, we both gamble a, probably a decent amount. Um, but I think that's the dumbest thing you've ever said to me. What's that for? I just want to put that out there. Gambling on golf. Is the best way. To Let gamble. me tell you why. That's the dumbest thing. You've ever- Let me tell you why. So you're, when you gamble on a Wednesday, you are, you are using your money for four days worth of sweats and entertainment. So the whole point is when you got when you bet on golf, you can bet a lot of fucking things on golf. And you, uh, you know, you we can have some people. You know, there's a bunch of people out there that will agree with me on this. So when you bet on NBA, you're betting on a game, right? You have two and a half, three hours worth of entertainment. When you bet on golf, it is four days. It's Thursday through Sunday. You're betting on guys. You're betting on to wins. You're betting on top tens, top twenties. You're betting on make. Make the cuts, right? So, like, who the fuck wants to watch four days of golf? When you're sitting, well, you don't, you don't necessarily have to watch all four days, but when you're sitting there on on a Friday, you know, a Friday afternoon, sweating because your guy is minus one and the cut line's minus two, and you know, for and, and this could this could also extend to DraftKings and FanDuel, right? And you're sitting there and like, hey, for this guy, this guy can make me two hundred bucks if he makes this putt. That is more of a sweat. Than wondering if the Knicks are going to beat the Bulls by fucking four, and, and that's yeah, but I that and that's my point. Yeah, but I enjoy watching the Knicks try and beat the Bulls by four. So I'm not just watching it for the gambling; I'm also watching it because it's a fun fucking sport. So maybe that's where we differ. Is for me, it's every all of the sports have now drilled down to to just looking at gambling and, and well, ex- except for the obviously the top moments and top games. But you know, when when you look at like the the, the overall game, to me, it, it just drills down to all right. Can this team either beat this team or can this golfer win a major or win a tournament? And for me, and I'm and look, I'm not talking about entertainment value. I'm talking about the the making your money stretch to a gambling perspective. If I can bet on a Wednesday, my money can last Thursday through Sunday, and I'm still I'm still profiting on Sunday Sunday evening. Like that is to me the biggest stretch of my dollar versus betting on a random Knicks game on a fucking Thursday afternoon. Yeah, but here's the problem with that. That presupposes that, like, you know enough about golf to bet intelligently because otherwise you're just randomly throwing darts at a board. And and for me, like, I could never bet on the Masters. And you know why? Because I don't fucking know. And you know why I don't know? Because I don't follow golf. I don't read about golf. I don't watch tape on golf. I don't watch major golf events. So I don't know who to bet on. And so, like, that's why it's not – interesting to me because when i bet i want to be thinking like okay like i'm gonna use my intelligence and what i know from my background and from the amount of time i've invested in the sport to try and pick the outcome that i think is going to 
prevail. It's like I'm, I don't bet on cockfighting either because I have no idea which rooster is going to peck the other rooster's face off, and nor do I give a shit. That's how I feel about golf. Like, like I don't watch. Like, I don't know how you get yourself to watch enough golf so that you can bet on golf intelligently. Well, I mean, it's you're looking at also this standpoint. You're not. You're not when you bet a. A, uh, a Knicks versus Bulls matchup, you're, you're generally getting two to one unless you're getting great odds, right? Or you're getting, you're, sometimes you're getting, um, you have to pay juice to the, to the casino. With golf, sometimes like you could find a guy who, you're, who you like. And again, a lot of this is trends and stuff like that. And again, if we, if me and you could sit down and, and determine the best bets every week, well, you know, we would be living in fucking Vegas in a penthouse, and like that's all we'd be doing. We, 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 yeah, doing a lot of doing a lot of well, blow. We, we, Let's just put we that. We figure out, out the algorithms of sports gambling. So, like, obviously, that's not the case. So, what, but in 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 golf, and I'm sorry, yeah, golf is very similar to horse betting, and it, actually, it's really not. But like, you know what I'm saying? You, I can get I can get a golfer who is trending upwards at 35 to one. I mean, and, and a guy who I'm very comfortable with, a guy who is still he should be in contention because. When you've been on a general golf game, you can see Rory McIlroy a two to one, Dustin Johnson a five to one to win, and then you see like a guy like Matt Kuchar at thirty to one, and I'm like, you know what, Matt Kuchar is not fucking bad, and I'm going to get thirty to one, and I can watch this guy play four rounds of golf and, and cheer him on, and, and hey, guess what? If I bet ten bucks, I'm winning three hundred dollars. It covers my entire fucking month. Like you know that that stuff to me is like it's pretty cool. Uh, to get yeah, but you're, you're skipping the foundational point of how you know who Max Kutra is. Like, I mean, it's, it's just general research. You have to devote time researching golf. Yeah, but are you going to tell, you gonna tell me you know the 15 guys in the Bulls roster to, to have actually a great bet to say the Knicks are going to beat the Bulls by four points? I don't need to know 15 guys on the Bulls roster. All I need to know is like the top three, uh, right? And I like watching Knicks games. I would watch Knicks games even if I didn't gamble on it. Like, it's the same reason I don't bet on cricket. Like who knows? Who yeah, knows but who that's but you're talking about obscure. You're you're comparing fucking golf to like cockfighting and cricket. I mean, this is and, at yeah, least golf's a little bit more mainstream than that. Like I mean, and, and these guys, <laughs> if you're, these guys are well if known. You're 50 like years old, and you wear pink pants, then yeah, it's more mainstream. That's why I have a I have a hard time believing that you. Well, I, maybe you would rather. I, again, I get I get it from the entertainment value, but really, like you wouldn't want to see Dustin Johnson, Tiger Woods versus fucking. Phil Mickelson and Rory McIlroy on an 18-hole million dollars. Million as much as I want to see Tom Brady and Peyton Manning and Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. I, I can't believe we're even having this debate. Listen, if you're, if, you, if you're listening to this podcast, can you please comment and let us know what side of this debate you're on, whether you would want to see Tiger and Phil and Manning and Brady or Tiger and Phil and and two great young golfers square off because I, I gotta know which one of us is like out the left field here. I gotta tell you, I think it's fucking. Oh, crazy. I think it's. I don't think there's very. I don't think there's very many people who are gonna say no. I don't want to see Brady and Manning. I'd rather. Well, see we could see Brady every Rory fucking Sunday. Like, I mean, I just feel like. Oh wouldn't God. isn't it? Isn't it? Wouldn't this set up to be just the greatest torch passing? I mean, you're talking about the two old. Torch, what the fuck are you talking about? Torch passing? It's golf. Oh come on! Like the, people, <laughs> golf, golf has been looking for the next Tiger Woods for the past 15 fucking years. I mean, like ever since his well, maybe not 15, oh, but, but you know what I'm saying. Like they've been looking for that next top player to drive the ratings to golf. I think that's <laughs> like I mean we can uh, and then look I any kind of Tiger ratings any kind of Tiger Woods match is great, but. I don't know. I just felt like this. It could have been more appropriate if they would have had four, like two of the top young golf stars, 
versus two of the older golf stars. Well, maybe they'll do that next time. But in any way, we've, we've learned a lot tonight. Uh, we, we've learned that uh, DeAndre Baker is in big trouble. Um, we've, we've learned from Jim and his perspective that he pretty much thinks all football players are fucking thugs. <laughs> and yeah. we have also learned that gambling on golf is apparently fun. So since we're gambling on golf, uh, I'm going to gamble on golf. I'm going to give you your choice. Who, who do you want tomorrow to to win? And I'll take the other shot. I don't really give a shit who Well, I mean, I, I'm not putting a ton of money on it, but I do have Tiger Woods. Um, I think this is his redemption against Phil Mickelson. I feel like Tiger Woods – and they're both big gamblers, so there will be a ton of side bets. I'll tell you that right now. I mean, they're going to make a lot of bets tomorrow. But Tiger Woods still feels a lot of sh- like pain. And, and from that last – and I know it's for fun, Tiger versus Phil – but I think Tiger really wants to get the second leg of this thing. And it's in a setup, I think, again, for a Tiger-Phil match, like best of three. Um, so I, I feel like Tiger will get the second, the second one. All right. I'll take the other side of that. As much as I don't want to bet on Tom Brady and wanted to bet on Peyton. Well, that's Brady, another reason. I will. What? Yeah, I'll, 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 take, I'll take Tom Brady and, uh, and Phil and hope that Lefty and, and the new guy in Tampa Bay – can pull it out and uh all right that's sorry really quick chris before we wrap up um having said that for tomorrow as well there is and because we're talking about sports with no sports uh the nascar race in charlotte tomorrow i do have kevin harvick at four to one and martin truex jr at six to one if anybody's interested in gambling race bet on nascar it's a lot better than than betting on golf in my opinion all right we are done Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe and uh, we will be back with you hopefully next week. I know we, I know we skipped a, a week or maybe even a, a little more. Jim and I were actually busy playing in uh, a couple poker tournaments. Um, actually did very well. I made the final table. So I'm, I'm very, very happy with uh, the results of that. Made a little bit of money, but we're going to try and not let this get away from us again. And hopefully, uh, you know, we'll be back with you next week. Until then, take care and don't catch COVID because I hear it sucks.